Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Berosli. On the streets leading down to the main road to Tiananmen Square, furious people stared in disbelief at the glow in the sky, listening to the sound of shots. It shocked the world and changed the course of Chinese politics. On June 4, 1989, tanks and soldiers descended upon Tiananmen Square in China's capital, Beijing. The troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still, there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. Thousands died. They're shouting, stop the killing and down with the government. Even though the Communist Party of China had been working to open up the country's economy and encourage growth, the June 4th massacre signaled that openness would be limited to the economy. For the first time in huge numbers, the ordinary men and women of Beijing, the old and the young, professors and taxi drivers, have joined the student protest, lending their support. The government tightened the political reins, and for the past 30 years, as the economy boomed and China emerged as a world power, it has perfected its tools of repression, routinely rounding up dissidents and working to erase the memory of what took place. The government has to admit that this demonstration is a patriot demonstration. What has been the impact of this erasure? How have the events of June 4, 1989 shaped China's development and place in the world? In this extended podcast, three experts join me to answer those questions. Hello. Hi, Louisa. This Louisa is Lim is an award-winning journalist who has Hello. reported from China for a decade, most recently for National Public Radio. Sure, no problem. Um, so just tell me when you want me to start recording. and let's... She's the author of The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited. I am recording on two devices at my end. Great. And where are, you, where are we reaching you? So I'm at the moment I'm in Hong Kong. Uh, I'm actually based at the University of Melbourne, but I'm on a kind of like a sabbatical. I'm taking, uh, I've been a writer in residence at the University of Hong Kong for six months because I'm writing a book on Hong Kong. When we talk about Tiananmen, we in the West recall the tanks that rolled in the Beijing Square on June 4th, 1989, and that iconic image of Tank Man. What does Tiananmen stand for, for the average Chinese person? That's a really hard question to answer because, in fact, many Chinese people have really never heard of June the 4th, 1989. Uh, The words the Tiananmen Movement or the Tiananmen Spring, the Beijing Spring, that doesn't really mean anything to them. So I think in the West, we remember that whole series of events because it was a seven-week long occupation of the square, but a series of protests led by students that turned into a popular movement all over China, um, demanding change. So asking for uh, democracy and freedom of speech and an end to corruption, among other things. But um, over time, over the past 30 years, the Chinese government has really succeeded in writing this out of history. And a lot of Chinese people, in particular young Chinese people who didn't live through this, they don't even know that anything happened in 1989. So the words June the 4th really, really mean nothing to them at all. And you write a lot about that in your book, The People's Republic of Amnesia, that citizens in today's China have been co-opted into silence and that there is a cost for them remembering June 4th, 1989. What is that cost? Well, I mean, the cost to memory is 
actually, interestingly, becoming higher and higher. And it's, it's harder to remember, even in the five years since my book was written. Nowadays, any acts, public acts of memory or of commemoration are really punished by the authorities. And I mean, in the past, you could get away with remembering privately in your own home, perhaps. But today, even those kind of acts are punished as well. So, um, for example, the, there was uh, a group called the Tiananmen Mothers, which is a group of relatives of those who died in 1989, which has become a lobbying group. And um, occasionally they have held commemorations and a couple of their more prominent members have, have held, have even taken part in symposiums and sort of seminars in Beijing. And interestingly, five years ago in 2014, they tried to have one in somebody's house. It was at the house of a film professor called Hao Jian and 15 people took part. And within a couple of days, five of those 15 people were detained. It was really interesting because it was in a private location, but the uh, charge that was leveled against them was creating a public disturbance. And that's a charge that we see used more and more um, for acts of memories. And so people become worried to remember. And if you're a journalist in China, it's much harder to find anyone who will take your interview because people who accept interviews about June the 4th are, are detained or they're taken away. So they're sort of incommunicado. So there's no one to interview. So it's really hard to write stories about the anniversary. But there is one anniversary that the Communist Party of China has been pushing for people to remember. And it's particularly about its founding the student protests in May 1919. Why is it so different for the Chinese to remember that as opposed to what happened in 1989? It's used in a different way by the Communist Party. So this is very much the way that history is taken and the parts that the Communist Party wants to remember, it will foreground and it will set that narrative and that is the way that people are supposed to remember. And the parts that are uh, more uncomfortable or, or show the Communist Party in a bad light, for example, the Great Famine or the Cultural Revolution or, of course, the killings um, in 1989, will be kind of coercively forgotten. Uh, the student movement of 1919, the May 4th movement, is a really interesting case because the students in 1989 really consciously used that. And they saw themselves as the successor of the 1919 students in being patriots and in working to bring the country forward and advance it. But uh, the Communist Party uh, sees them as, as separate events, one of which should be remembered and one of which should be forgotten. And it's interesting that while the, the Chinese Communist Party has erased the memory of June 4th, 1989, in many ways, you can say that the Chinese people have gone along with it. And you, you've noted that most Chinese citizens see how their lives have improved over the past several decades. That the CPC had to crack down on the student protesters in order to proceed with their plan to, quote unquote, make China great again and compete on the global stage, which many Chinese are proud of. How much of their amnesia is a willingness to erase history versus a result of nationalism and a desire to stand up to the West? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that narrative that 
the suppression of 1989 was necessary for China to become what it is today. That's the government orthodox narrative, right? And I mean, it's very much a retrospective justification that what happened back then was necessary, that there was no other way. Uh, uh, and that China could not possibly have been successful had that act of repression not happened. And I think many people buy into it, uh, especially people inside China. I mean, they buy into it because they see how economically successful China has been. But more than that, they buy into it because they've had 30 years of propaganda telling them that this is the case. And because they see how much richer they are, then of course it's it's easy to believe. So in a system like China, where ideological education is really baked into every aspect of the education system, then it's kind of hard to separate things out. And then the other aspect of this is the whole way in which that nationalism that we see today grew out of 1989. And it was really a... Um, a reaction to the protests uh, that Deng Xiaoping, who was the sort of paramount leader at the time, uh, he believed that the protests had been so successful because young Chinese hadn't realized what the party had done for them. So he then mandated that Chinese people should be taught how things used to be and what the party had been had done for them. And so in 1991, this huge ideological program of patriotic education was brought in. And we still see that today. I mean, you know, and it, it's across every arena. It's in school textbooks, in, in the movies that you see in the cinema and the TV shows that uh, play on TV in the newspapers. And, you know, some people call it the biggest ideological campaign in human history. That also has had an impact on the way that, that young Chinese think. And it, you know, it has made them proud to be Chinese. And it has, in many cases, made them proud of the achievements of the Communist Party. And I mean, you know, that's because that's what the campaign was supposed to do. It's been very successful. So the Chinese Communist Party has, has suppressed the memory of 1989 for the past 30 years. And it's propagating kind of a different form of history, especially pushing the student protests in 1919. How long can they go manipulating history in this way? Every country manipulates history in different ways. And I mean, in many ways, what we see today has its antecedents in China's dynastic past, where every incoming dynasty would then rewrite the history of earlier dynasties. And I mean, you know, that's what the Communist Party has done in, in many ways, but now it's been in power for so long. It is rewriting its own history. I mean, I think one of the questions that is interesting is how long can this continue in today's interconnected era? Um, many people thought that this kind of coercive ideological orthodoxy, this kind of very rigid thinking would be hard to sustain um, with the internet. But actually what we've seen has been China really increasing its controls over the internet and almost a kind of intranet, a nationwide intranet emerging in China. So there you see all, you know, all kinds of mentions of June the 4th 
uh, are censored in all kinds of extraordinary ways. So first they censored June the 4th. And so then netizens started calling it May the 35th. So then they censored May the 35th. And then people started calling it April the 65th. So then April the 65th got censored. And then words like this month, that year were censored. (laughs) Then words like that day and tomorrow and then even words like nostalgia and when spring turns to summer started being censored. So you see this sort of extreme effort at censorship, which really does sometimes impinge on everyday life. So there was, you know, the often around the anniversary, it's very hard to make money transfers if you've got 64, which is Liu Si, which is June the 4th in Chinese, or 8989, Bajiu. If those figures are in your money transfer, you might not be able to make it around the anniversary. And that's because the controls on the internet are, are so extreme. So, you know, in many ways, I think it's um, a demonstration of how successful that the Communist Party has been. All of that really makes me wonder what the consequences are. And and particularly, what are the consequences of China not teaching its people about Tiananmen? Yeah, it's a really good question. There's all kinds of consequences. And I think on the most basic level, one of the consequences is a lack of accountability because people, there's never been a reckoning. Nobody has ever been held responsible for anything. And I mean, that's not just Tiananmen, it's all deadly campaigns that the Communist Party has held throughout its history. But I think people see that. And so they see this lack of accountability coming from the top down. And I think they see it replicated as well in the power structures in in the country. So I think that is a real problem. It's a real sort of moral failure when nobody is ever held responsible for anything. And then there's also the, the question of the object lesson. So Tiananmen was suppressed. And then in many ways, this was an object lesson that after that moment, um, political participation or moves for political liberalization were, were, were no longer um, advocated. You know, China didn't, has not made any moves towards political liberalization since 1989. And any type of kind of political participation is seen as basically dangerous. You know, students understand that instinctively, but if they no longer know <laughs> the result of, of Tiananmen, then that object lesson becomes lost. So that's another danger that the kind of the erasure of the collective memory of Tiananmen has been so successful that people kind of no longer understand what happened. They no longer know what the dangers of political protest are. Um, So that that would be another uh, another ramification. Louisa, we end each of our episodes um, asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? I mean, in many ways at this moment, if you look at China from the inside, it's hard to feel particularly hopeful, particularly since the end of term limits means that Xi Jinping uh, effectively has a blank check. And particularly given what's happening in the northwestern province of Xinjiang, where there's 
estimated to be a million Uyghurs who are being held in ideological re-education camps, which are little more than concentration camps. But I think there are things that give me hope. Um, if you think about it, there's more than 600,000 Chinese students overseas. And I think that's a real cause for hope. Uh, I recently was in the US and I did um, give a number of talks, including at Yale and at Harvard and including some with Wang Dan, who was a student leader back in 1989. And it was really noticeable to me how many young Chinese turned up to those talks and how interested they were and how some of them asked some really, really good questions. So I think that gives me cause for hope that students, Chinese students who are incredibly hardworking and incredibly smart and diligent will go overseas and will learn more about their country's history and will use their time overseas to educate themselves and maybe we'll go back and, and use that knowledge in different ways. Louisa, thank you. Thank you. Soviet President Gorbachev is flying to China at this hour. He should arrive about 11 p.m. Eastern Time flying to Beijing for the first Sino-Soviet summit meeting in 30 years. But even as China's communist leaders prepare to receive the Soviet communist leader, they've had to contend with students demanding democratic reforms. At this hour, there are hundreds of thousands of people here in Tiananmen Square. In the history of communist China, there has never been anything like this. Hello. Hi, Lord Patton. Hello, yes. Hi, this is Elmira Ankasha from Project Syndicate. Nice to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. How are you, sir? I'm all right, and you? Chris Patton served as the last British governor of Hong Kong from 1992 to 1997. Oh, and where are we reaching you, sir? You're reaching me at my home, uh, southwest London, Barnes. He is the author of several books, including East and West, China, Power, and the Future of Asia. We're ready to start. Okay, fire away. During the 1989 Tiananmen Square protest, you were in Beijing for an annual meeting of the Asian Development Bank. What was the atmosphere like in the early stages of the crisis? Everybody had thought that the main excitement at the meeting of the ADB that year, and I was a, a vice chairman because of the ministerial job I had in London, uh, would be the seating for the first time um, of a delegation from Taiwan and that that might be matched by the fact that while we were having our meetings, Mr. Gorbachev was paying um, a, a visit, a state visit to Beijing, at which the Chinese were obviously very keen to show him how uh, a communist regime should actually be run. But um, when we arrived for the meeting, it, it seemed as though Beijing was increasingly in a festival mood. There were young people and older people everywhere, um, and, of course, the students took over Tiananmen Square, um, and they had that um, great uh, Statue of Liberty. And you really felt as though you were um, going through a period of real historic change. Um, we had a meeting with uh, Zhao Xiyang, who was the head of the party at that time, who was on the reformist end of, of the Communist Party. Uh, and uh, everybody sat around all these finance ministers and development ministers um, talking about rural electrification schemes and 
primary health care and the uh, and the uh, education of the young, all the sorts of things that development ministers want to talk about. And nobody mentioned these extraordinary demonstrations around us until I eventually plucked up courage and asked Zhao Xiyang um, what was going on. And he obviously, with some relief, produced a card with uh, notes on it from his pocket uh, and then uh, read a statement to us saying how he didn't, of course, support everything the students were doing, but he sympathized with some of their arguments and frustrations. And it was very much the message which he went on to deliver to some of the students in the square that night. Um, unfortunately, um, his attempts to find a way through dialogue of ending the, the demonstrations provoked an angry backlash for some of his old colleagues in the party. Uh, and as you know, the tanks went in and the People's Liberation Army shot um, Chinese citizens. So it ended miserably. That's an interesting point that you bring up about how Zhao Jiang's response being very understanding of the demonstrators was so different from the actual response. And you write about that in a recent uh, Project Syndicate commentary. How did this mark a turning point for the party? Well, I think that the party in particular... Deng Xiaoping and some of his um, senior and elderly colleagues um, were horrified that they were going to lose control. Uh, and there's always been some view, I think, in, in, the, in a communist party like the one in China, that autocratic authoritarian regimes are always at their most vulnerable while they, when they try to reform. And I think that was certainly um, what the leadership felt then. And they would prefer to have soldiers shooting their own people rather than risk their own people actually taking charge of their own destiny. Um, and of course, it was such a horrendous event uh, in the history of China that the Communist Party has made every effort to, to wipe it off the slate and to pretend that it didn't happen. It's always a sign, I think, of weakness in any regime when it can't face up to its own history. You note in that Project Syndicate piece that the Communist Party of China is no longer particularly communist, but is increasingly Leninist. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, I don't think that the main um, task, the main objective of the Communist Party today uh, is social equity. Uh, indeed, they're very, very nervous about the, the, the way in which that issue is normally uh, measured that is the Gini coefficient, and the, uh, what's actually happening um, to social inequity is, I think, um, something which is kept um, under close secret guard. What the party is most interested in is the party staying in office, uh, and I think that that accounts for the way in which Xi Jinping has rolled back the reforms which had been put in place uh, by um, Deng Xiaoping and has reasserted party control over every aspect of government and over every aspect of, of life in the country. So it's become a Leninist authoritarian dictatorship, really, uh, rather than a communist society, uh, which is principally um, looking at how you can um, help um, the poor, not just financially, but through increased social services and public services. Now, to be fair, in uh, Deng Xiaoping's period, hundreds of millions of Chinese were lifted out of poverty. Um, but at the same time, uh, the rich became more numerous and became richer. Um, I think you'd have to 
have a, a very good way of counting to, to rustle up the numbers for all the billionaires in Beijing today. I'd love to pick up on that point about China's economic growth. And you've written that many thought that after decades of breakneck growth and far-reaching economic reforms, a more outward-looking China would perhaps inevitably move towards greater accountability, transparency, and liberal values. Clearly, that hasn't happened. Will China proceed to double down on strongman rule and seek to reshape the international order to its worldview? I think what China... Um, or what the Chinese leadership um, are convinced of is that they can buck the trend. And the trend, after all, was uh, articulated extremely well by Karl Marx, who thought that economic change had political consequences. Uh, And the same is true of technological change. And what the uh, leadership in China is trying to do is to demonstrate that despite what's been happening to the economy, despite the development of of a middle class, for example, despite all the technical changes which in a lot of societies have made people freer because of giving them greater access to more information, that in China the leadership are trying to um, ensure that that doesn't happen and that the party remains um, the one boss. I'm sufficiently liberal in, in in the marrow of my bones to think that you can't get away with that forever. Um, As I said, it's not a very good indication of self-confidence in your system of government when you can't recognize what's happened in your history, whether it's the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution or all the violence associated with it, or more recently, what happened in Tiananmen Square. You served as the last British governor of Hong Kong from 1992 until the handover to the mainland in 1997. Despite promising one country, two systems, the Chinese Communist Party has tightened its control over the island. Can the Communist Party succeed in silencing Hong Kongers and indeed erasing all institutional traces of the British legacy? I don't think it's a question of the British legacy. I think it's a question of the, of the yearning of people in Hong Kong to be able to continue to um, show that they have a sense of Hong Kong Chinese citizenship. They understand in the marrow of their bones, the relationship between economic and political freedom. That's something that's not something we imposed. It's something which they came to understand instinctively. One country, two systems was a very clever and thoughtful way of actually managing an issue, um, which was embarrassing both for the Chinese and for Britain. For the Chinese, it was embarrassing because Hong Kong had been acquired um, during the appalling uh, years of unequal treaties when Uh, The Chinese economy, to some extent, was globalized by outside colonial powers through through, uh, the sale of opium. Um, But it was also morally um, difficult and embarrassing for the Chinese because they realized that more than half the population in Hong Kong were refugees from events in modern China, refugees from the Communist Party and some of its uh, appalling uh, misdeeds. And people had, had swum through dangerous waters, had crawled over barbed wire, in order to escape from communism to, frankly, a British colony. It was embarrassing for the British because of the circumstances in which we'd acquired Hong Kong, which nobody would seek to justify these days, and because, unlike our other colonies, we weren't able to prepare it for independence. The Chinese were very alarmed 
that if we tried to develop democracy too fast, that's exactly what people would expect, that, they'd be, that they were going to become, as it were, another Singapore, and that was never, never going to happen. So it was a very, very difficult transition, both for the Chinese and, 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 and the United Kingdom. And one country, two systems, which is guaranteed from, uh, for 50 years after 1997, was supposed to be, and it was set out in an international treaty at the UN, was supposed to be a way of getting around that. Hong Kong would continue to have substantial local autonomy, it would still have the rule of law, and it would have the development um, of democratic institutions and the protection of human rights and civil liberties. And to a considerable extent, while it wasn't perfect, that didn't go too badly for 10, 12 years, um, though attempts at greater democracy were thwarted. Um, but in the last few years, I think particularly since Xi Jinping has um, been the boss, just as dissident activity has been, has been trampled on in China, uh, just as the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang have been incarcerated, uh, just as uh, on any sort of dissidence or, act, or human rights activity, the government have cracked down. So they've done exactly the same in Hong Kong. They've, they've increased their grip. They've uh, undermined the autonomy of the local government. Uh, and the most recent thing they've done and of course, it's not you know, in, on a parallel with what's happened in Xinjiang, but it's still um, a denial of the promises they made. What the latest thing they've done is they've obviously pressed the government introduce, into introducing arrangements on extradition, uh, which remove the firewall between the rule of law uh, in uh, Hong Kong and rule by law in China, where there's really no distinction made between independent courts um, and the security services, and the party's rules. So it's, I think, the most worrying thing that's happened in, in Hong Kong so far, and it's not surprising that it's caused so much outrage in the business community, chambers of commerce, and lawyers. What, if anything, gives you hope about China? I very much hope that China continues to succeed and to prosper. It's not in anybody's interests um, that China should do badly, but I also hope that the Chinese Communist Party will um, wither on the vine um, and give China the government which it deserves uh, and that uh, China will, will, while prospering, uh, not turn immediately into a multi-party democracy. That isn't going to happen, not overnight anyway, but that it will gradually become more accountable and that it will help to sustain um, the international rule book and international order. Um, it should recognize that organizations like the WTO um, have been very much um, in China's interest. But if China breaks its word over what it's doing in, in uh, Hong Kong, um, I think people will find it very difficult to believe what China says about anything. Lord Patton, thank you so much. Was that all right? That was terrific. Good, okay. Why is this issue, this historical event, so sensitive years later? Yeah, that's exactly the question I want to ask the Communist Party. Why are you so afraid? We've had interviews that have mysteriously been canceled right before we were supposed to hold them. We've even had locations where we were supposed to do those interviews sealed by police who are clearly monitoring our communication. China still won't let its people talk about it. I'm Elmira, and this Hi, is Kasha. Sophie Richardson is the China director at Human Rights Watch. She's the author of China, Cambodia, and the Five Principles of Peaceful Coexistence. 
Sophie, let's start with the state of China in 1989. Back then, the country was moving towards modernization. Deng Xiaoping had spent the previous decade implementing far-reaching economic reforms. Those reforms opened up China and spurred growth. It also sparked growing support for political reform as well. The student-led protests in Tiananmen Square reflected that, and the government subsequently slaughtered an estimated 10,000 people to stop the democracy movement. But you wouldn't know it in China today. How have the authorities repressed discussion, much less any public com- commemoration of the massacre over the past 30 years? I mean, Chinese authorities have followed, you know, the textbook of scrubbing references out of recent history books, censoring public discussions. You know, and some of the only conversations about Tiananmen that are allowed to take place are in these very tightly closed party circles, you know, that are devoted to assessing what went right, what went wrong, lessons to take away from Tiananmen. You know, but it's very hard now to, you know, even at a time when, you know, China is much more technologically advanced and in some people's thinking more open than it was in the years immediately after Tiananmen. You know, if you sat down in an internet cafe in Beijing and typed in the word Tiananmen, you wouldn't get much. Uh, And so even people who are vaguely aware of what happened or curious really have to work hard on a couple of different levels to find out what happened. And yet when you type in May 1919, that is something that you can find in China. And the Communist Party of China has made it a point, particularly this year, to, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the May 4th movement but it suppresses the memory of 1989. And yet the students 30 years ago also claimed the legacy of 1919. Which side is right? (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, look, the Chinese Communist Party, I think uh, people underestimate its capacity as a a PR machine and its ability to spin and reshape historical events. And of course, you know, fewer people are alive today who were around in 1919 to offer up a different alternative or a different, you know, a different narrative about how that event played out. And so when the Chinese government deploys its own version of the May 4th movement, you know, there are fewer people available to criticize it. We know partly because, you know, the media was standing there in 1989 recording what was happening that that what took place is very different to what Chinese leaders today will say. Uh, and, and in that sense, people have much more ability to challenge the more recent events where it's harder to do that, I think, with 1919. And the Xi Jinping government has been very clear in its willingness to use brutality to suppress discussions of particular events or developments it doesn't like. Um, but I do think there, you know, there's some wonderful online commentary in these in these oblique ways that netizens in China will use to criticize the ways the party this year held up the May Fourth legacy while simultaneously repressing student activism around labor issues or other contemporary issues that students are trying to discuss. So that brings up a question about how activists or anyone who disagrees with the government, how do they express themselves? Oh, people are are wonderfully uh, tough, but also incredibly clever. I mean, in the discussion, for example, inside China about the Me Too movement, because the, the, the actual translation of the term was censored online, people used homophones. And so they used the term for rice, me, and for rabbits, too. 
uh, as sort of an alternative way of discussing the Me Too movement without those conversations getting censored. But also people have, you know, networks of contacts they know they can talk to. Uh, you know, they are able to gather information and document the ways even in which their own conversations are censored. But, you know, we often point out that people should not mistake a lack of a very visible discussion about certain kinds of human rights or political developments for a lack of discussion. It's that it often takes place in ways or at levels that aren't necessarily easy to see outside those immediate circles. China took a big risk in cracking down on the students in 1989. Back then, it wasn't the economic titan it is today. And now we fast forward 30 years on, and we're not hearing much about China and human rights, even as the mainly Muslim Uyghur minority is being locked up in re-education camps. Is there a way to hold China's leaders to account? God knows we're trying. Uh, Yeah, I think one of the lessons that the CCP took away from Tiananmen was that you probably don't want to kill peaceful protesters if you don't absolutely have to. And if you have to do it, you really don't want to do it with the Western media standing there to film it. And I think that's why we've seen such incredible restrictions on the press over the years, particularly around things like protests, the Olympics, access to Xinjiang now, you know, the stories the Chinese government really doesn't want the outside world to see or know about. It's tough to get governments or organizations like the UN to push back against China's rights violations. And it's partly because, you know, they fear retaliation. And, you know, China is not shy about deploying those tactics, most recently and horrifyingly, the detention of two Canadians in response to Canada's helping the U.S. in the prosecution of a a Huawei executive. At the same time, I think governments are starting to understand that human rights abuses inside China have consequences for them, both in terms of their own citizens, but also the kind of, you know, economic relationships that they want to have that require a free press or a functional legal system. China doesn't have either of those. But I think increasingly governments are also seeing the ways in which China's human rights violations are taking place beyond China's borders in their own countries, in institutions like the UN, and the very immediate consequences that can have for citizens of countries like the US or, you know, trying to advance an agenda, a pro-rights human rights agenda within the Human Rights Council, where China now has enormous influence to block all kinds of discussions, not just about China but about other parts of the world, too. And I think one of the best examples of this was a year or so ago when the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights wanted to brief the Security Council about developments in Syria, and China blocked that. So it's not just a question of not having a conversation about China. It's it's China's ability to block having a conversation about other major world developments. And I think governments have been slow to wake up to this reality and see the extent to which the CCP has really infiltrated other governments, other populations, other institutions. Uh, And the question now is really how they're going to push back against that without also forgetting that there are still serious human rights violations going on inside China that they need to respond to. That was actually one of the questions I had. As China seeks to become a true global power, how worried should we be that it will export its methods of control worldwide? Very. I don't see why people aren't a lot more worried about this. I mean, look, when China appoints the head of its notoriously abusive police force to become the president of Interpol, 
And that person then goes back to China and is disappeared and is now, now we know months later where he's being held and what the charges are and he will be prosecuted. If that doesn't tell people what they need to know about Chinese government influence and the way that can affect an international institution, I mean, in Interpol's case, it's largely about credibility. But in other institutions, you know, for example, look at something like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is sort of China's answer to the World Bank. You know, this is a development institution that's now lending for projects all over the world that is almost completely devoid of functional safeguards mechanisms that affected people can use to complain about development in their countries. Look at efforts like the Belt and Road Initiative, where, you know, enormous investment takes place, sometimes in countries that have highly authoritarian regimes. It's very, some of these are very predatory, forms of predatory development, you know, and people have almost no ability to push back (laughs) against that. And, you know, I think we need to be very concerned as China becomes increasingly powerful. And it's very clear that Xi Jinping has an international agenda that involves radically rewriting international norms that are not friendly to human rights. Sophie, we ask all of our guests this question. What gives you hope? Oh, that's a very easy one. You know, many people, I think, forget that one of the prevailing sentiments on the square in Beijing was joy. You know, that that people were so excited to be having these conversations about democracy, to be able to engage in political debates, the, you know, the hope for political reform. And of course, of course, the immediate outcome was horrific. And a lot of what we've documented over the last 30 years is, you know, of enormous concern. But even now, if you sit down and talk with activists from China, even people who've been in jail, people who've been tortured, who come out and they go right back to their work. They're not going to be stopped. They believe in their bones, <laughs> in democracy, in human rights, and that that is what they must and will keep working for. And as long as they're going to keep doing that, we're going to keep doing what we do. Sophie, thank you. Sure. That was Chris Patton, the last British governor of Hong Kong. Louisa Lim, the author of The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited, and Sophie Richardson, the China Director at Human Rights Watch. Thanks for listening to this extended podcast on China.